Good morning, guys. Good to be back with you all as we start this brand new series called Miracles. Uh, if you haven't been with us here at Exponential for a while, or maybe this is your first time with us, back the last summer or so, we started just going through the Bible just chronologically, going just straight through. And uh, we basically covered all the Old Testament. Then we got to the Christmas season. Obviously, we talked about the birth of Jesus. And then at the beginning of the year, I kicked off a series called Meet Jesus. And we looked at the three stories that took place uh, before Jesus' ministry, his public ministry actually started. And then last week, Nate wrapped up a great series called Hashtag Potential, and he shared with you sort of the, the call of the first disciples and what it looks like to be a disciple for Jesus and who it is that, that Jesus is asking to be disciples. And I hope that one of the things that you noticed out of the series was that it's just everyday people. It's normal people like you and I. Jesus didn't call the religious elite. He called just tax collectors and fishermen, people like you and I. Basically, his attitude was this, that there's no perfect people allowed. And that's one of our core values here at Exponential is that, hey, look, no perfect people allowed. That starts with me. That starts with Nate. It starts with all of us, that no perfect people are allowed. We're all just fellow uh, sinners that have gotten saved by God's grace. And now God sees that potential in us to do great and mighty things for him. Essentially, what Jesus is looking for is fat people, right? Now, I'm not talking about like obese people. I'm talking about faithful and available and teachable fat right faithful available teachable that's who he is looking for and one of the things that was sort of a common thread that nate sort of tied through his series maybe you noticed it maybe you didn't is that every single person that had potential were people that kept their eyes focused on jesus anytime they kept their eyes focused on him things worked out for them when they took their eyes off of jesus then it didn't now, I bring all that up because this is still going to apply to this series called Miracles that we're starting today. You see, as awesome as what the miracles are going to be, and Jesus did, you know, 30, it depends on uh, which, which uh, commentator you're looking at. You know, sometimes they tie various ones together, but it's somewhere between like 30 and 35 miracles that Jesus performs. As you look at those, they are amazing. But really what the miracles are doing is they're helping us to focus more on Jesus. It's not about the miracle itself, it's about the God who does the miracle. And so we're going to start today with his very first miracle that he ever did. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to John chapter 2, that's where we're going to hang out today, John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine, all the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. Also in the program that you receive, the scriptures are there on the insert. And if you have a smartphone, you can pull that out. There's actually two different ways that you can get the scriptures. One would be to download the YouVersion app, again that's YouVersion and that actually has a bunch of cool stuff. Not only can you read the scriptures, but there's commentaries and various things, devotionals that you're able to do on there. Or on your smartphone, you can go to our website, exponential.church, and we have our digital bulletin, and you can actually download, actually, you don't even have to download it, it just pops right up. You can get the actual outline that I'm doing. It's the same one that's there in your program, and you can fill it all out, and what's neat about that is at the very end, you just hit the little button that says email to me, and you get the email of the notes that you took throughout today's message. So. In any case, there's a lot of different ways to get connected with God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, we do give those away for free out in the lobby after the experience is over, so you may want to pick one of those up. All right, everybody to John chapter 2, if you're there, say, I'm ready. ready. All right, that was half of you. <laughs> Let's try it again. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. All right, here we go. John chapter 2, beginning with verses 1 and then verse 2. It says, a wedding took place in the city of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and the disciples were also invited and in attendance. 
True confession time. I wear a suit for two occasions. <laughs> Weddings and funerals. And here's where the true confession part comes in. Funerals are a lot easier to do than what a wedding is. Because I can't really mess up a funeral. And even if I do, nobody's really paying attention. <laughs> but if I mess up a wedding, oh boy, I'm going to hear it. And you know who I hear it from? Either the bride or who? The bride's mother, bride's mother right. <laughs> and so, you know, when it comes to the receptions that they have afterwards, a lot of people think that those are for the bride and the groom to celebrate, you know, their nuptials. You know what I treat it as? I treat it as a victory lap, right? <laughs> people are out there doing like the electric slide and stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a jig, right? Because, hey, I didn't mess anything up. And, man, I've been to some, some weddings that, man, they, they just have these receptions. They're just like these complete, just blown out affairs, right? Like a lot of money spent on all these things. Here's what's amazing, though. As big as what our receptions are today, they pale in comparison to what a reception was like back in biblical times. You see, our receptions last, what, three or four hours? In Jesus' day, a reception lasted for three to four days, if not even longer. See, here's how it worked. They would have the ceremony in the evening, and then what they would do is they would light torches... And there would be like this parade through town, leading the, the new couple through the town. And people would come out of their homes to greet them and, and to celebrate with them. And then over the next three to four days, sometimes even up to a week, they would gather together at the groom's home there. And it would be sort of like an open house that people would come in and there would be dancing and singing and celebrating. There would be food and wine. I mean, it was just this big, big deal. I mean, they would look at ours today and they go, wait, that's it? So a major, major deal was these receptions. And the, the people in charge of it were the groom's family. They were sort of the ones behind the scenes, making sure that everything continued to, to run like a well-oiled machine. And what you need to understand is that in Jewish culture, hospitality is a very, very high value. And so you didn't want to mess up one of these receptions. You wanted to make sure that, again, everything was running smoothly. Because if not, it would be a social disgrace. Which is what makes the, the next verse a little bit shocking. Look at, at verse 3. It says, The wine supply ran out during the festivities. And Jesus' mother came to him, meaning Jesus, with the problem. Again, this isn't actually just a problem. This is a disaster. This is an extreme breakdown in hospitality. This is the type of thing that this groom will never, ever live this down. People, as he's walking down the street, they'll point at him and laugh. That <laughs> There's the guy that ran out of wine. They'll make jokes about him. They'll be like, hey, you know why he's always so happy and cheerful? Because he's out of wine. All right, yeah. I was wondering about that one. <laughs> well, thanks, Wendy. At least one person. She's just buttering me up because uh, she has a wedding coming up. Yeah. <laughs> I 
so again, this was a huge, huge deal. They've run out of, of wine. He's going to be a laughingstock of the community. So it, it's sort of understandable that, that Mary's concerned. Now, we don't know if it's because Mary was a relative and it was her responsibility to be concerned about it or if she just was there as a, as a guest of the wedding and she happened to notice this. And she's like, man, I want to help this guy not to, not to have this social disgrace. But whatever her motivation was, she basically, she comes to Jesus, she says, four words for you. Big problem. No wine. She presents this to, to Jesus. She's like, I, I don't know how I know this, but I think he can, he can do something about this. I, I think he, he has the, the power to do that. Now, Jesus is about to do a miracle here. And, you know, on some levels, this is about helping a guy to avoid a social disaster. But actually, this miracle is way more than that. And so to help you understand that, one of the things you need to know is... Uh, sort of the attitude they had about wine. You see, not only was wine a, a drink, but throughout the, the Old Testament, their, their Jewish scriptures, th throughout that time, wine was not only a drink, but it was also symbolic of joy. It was symbolic of abundance. It was symbolic of, of God's blessing being on people. And you, you read about this like in the, the Old Testament book of Amos, who was one of the prophets. He's back in the White Pages, if you remember that series. He's, he's one of those guys. Um, in the Psalms, it's the same way that, that you, you read a lot about this. In the Proverbs, the same way that, that it's just about cheer and joy. So again, not only is it a drink, but it's symbolic of, of joy and, and abundance. Now, not joy and abundance because they've gotten drunk. That's not what we're talking about here. Scripture makes it very, very clear in both the Old Covenant and in the, in the New Testament then that, you know what? You can drink alcohol, but you do it in moderation. You, you can't drink to the point of actually getting drunk. Now, my personal philosophy, and I'm not asking you to adopt this, but my personal philosophy is it's hard to get drunk if you don't even have the first sip. You see, what happens with, with alcohol is you, you take that, that, that first glass of wine or that first beer or that first mixed drink or whatever is your choice, you have that, it does start to influence you a little bit. You may not be drunk, but it is starting to influence you, and it makes it harder to say no to the next one, which now it makes it harder to say no to the next one, and all of a sudden you didn't intend for it to happen, but you've gone too far. So again, personal philosophy, it's very hard to get drunk if you don't have the very first sip. But again, the, the, the point that I'm trying to get you to see here is this, that, that wine was not only a drink, but it was symbolic of something so much more. And so now we're, we're beginning to see why this miracle here that Jesus is about to do isn't just about avoiding a social disaster. There's so much more to it. It's deeper than that. And I guess what I'm trying to get you to see is that in the same way that the wine ran out at the wedding, doesn't the wine run out in your life sometimes? It just feels like the joy is not there, that you're running on empty, it's just dry, you're just sort of going through the motions. Now, I want to suggest that when those things happen to you, there's two different reasons that it could happen. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. Joy runs dry in my life because of the emptiness 
of this world. Now, don't get me wrong. This world has plenty to offer. Things that I love like chocolate and sushi. <laughs> and if they like put them together and had chocolate sushi, that'd be even better. I, I don't know. I haven't tried it, but it sounds uh, like amazing. <laughs> Or, you know, what, what, what about like a, taking a, a walk on a, on a spring day and, and watching the, the beauty of, of nature coming back to life? Or what about music and, and movies or, or books that, you know, things that sometimes as you're reading them or watching it or you're listening to it, it just sort of stirs your emotions. Or we've got family, we've, we've got friends, we've got love, there's marriage, there's all kinds of great things happening in this world. Those are all good things. But yet, those things alone will never bring us lasting satisfaction. You remember back this past fall, if you were here with us, we did a whole series about Solomon and the different ways that he got distracted. And you remember the story of Solomon? He's like, I'm chasing after all that stuff. I'm going after joy, the things that are going to make me happy. And if you remember, what, what did he have? He had everything. He had money. He had uh, success. He had power. He had all the women in the world that he could possibly want. He had education. He had wisdom. I mean, he was just, he had it all. But yet he writes a whole book of the Bible that we call the book of Ecclesiastes. And he gets to this conclusion. He says, I chased after all of it, and it was meaningless. Here was a guy that was pursuing the, the true wine of life, the thing that was going to bring him happiness and joy and cheer and the blessing of God, and he says it was all just like chasing after the wind. We do the same thing so often. We chase all the things that this world says that we should chase after. It's going to bring us happiness. Here's what we need to understand. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness has to do with your current circumstances. Joy is something that, that God gives you. It's this, this something from the inside that just is always there, that overflows and is out of you. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life with you or your family or your friends. That impacts your happiness. But the joy that Jesus wants you to have is something completely different. We don't get that from chasing after the things of this world because the things of this world are empty. So we've got to keep Jesus as our focus. We've got to keep him at the, the center. If not, your life is going to be empty. Now, some people, they, they figure this out at midlife, and we call it what? A midlife what? A midlife crisis. That you get to this place that you're like, there's got to be more than this. Thankfully for some, it happens much earlier, maybe while they're in college. For some, it, it happens later while they're in retirement. But many people get to that place that they're just like, is this it? Isn't there more? Why am I not happy? Well, again, it's not about your happiness. What we want you to have is joy. So not only... Will your joy run dry if you're chasing after the emptiness of the world? But number two then, joy runs dry in my life because of the emptiness of religious ritual. 
Now, I just said that we need to keep Jesus as the center of our life. Nate, in the previous series, he said about, you know, focusing on Jesus. And there's many times that we feel like we're doing that. That I'm trying to make him the center of my life. I'm trying to keep my eyes on him, but yet I still don't feel this joy. What am I doing wrong? What, what's, what's, what's happening here? And let me suggest to you that maybe what's happening is you've made your relationship, your, your focus, keeping your eyes on him, maybe you've just made it a, a ritual instead of a relationship with him. You see, what happens oftentimes is things which we're passionate about, we start out good, don't we? It could be your relationship with Jesus. It could be your relationship with your spouse. It could be a, a hobby. It could be anything, a job. We, we start out with passion. And we're, we're, we're doing things and, and saying things because, wow, I get to do this. This is amazing. This relationship or this job or whatever. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Then if we're not careful as time goes on, we keep doing the same things, but yet we're not doing it out of passion anymore. We're doing it out of habit. We're doing it just as a, a ritual. And if you get to the place where things become ritualized, eventually you may even start to just neglect it altogether. I see this all the time with people. They come in a relationship with Jesus and they're excited about God's word. Man, they're in it. They're studying it. You know, they, they want to know everything. And they're, they're passionate that, oh, wow, I get to read this love letter that God has given to me. For some people, it's months. For some people, it's years. For some people, it's decades. If you're not careful, all of a sudden, you're reading God's word every day because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's just become this, this habit, this this ritual. And eventually, you just stop doing it all together. Now, it doesn't come right out here and say it, but I think that something similar is being implied in this particular story of Jesus that we're looking at. Now, spoiler alert, by the way, for those of you that don't know this story, Jesus is going to turn water into wine, okay? Let's just get that out, okay? He's going to turn water into wine. That's the miracle that's going to happen. And we're, we're going to get to the actual miracle here in a second. But to explain this ritual thing, I want to actually skip ahead a couple of verses. So skip down to verse 6. It says, At the feast there were six stone water jars that were used by the people for washing themselves in the way that their religion said what? Their religion said that they, that they must. Each jar held about 20 or 30 gallons. Again, it says they had to do this because their religion said that they must do it. Now, what was this, this whole thing about here, this, this cleansing that they were supposed to do with these water pots? Well, they were supposed to fill up the water pots with the, the water, and then they were supposed to, to go through the ceremonial cleansing of their hands. Now, this isn't like us that, you know, we tell our kids or whatever that, hey, go wash your hands before you eat. Now, why do we tell them to do that? Because we want the germs off, right? That wasn't what this was about. This wasn't a health thing. This was basically you were doing this as a way to make your whole entire being cleansed right in the sight of God. And what was interesting about this particular thing, and actually it's ironic about this particular thing, is God in the Old Covenant had given the nation of Israel 613 commands that they were to follow. And there were some commands about how to be ceremonially clean. 
But then what the, the Pharisees, which was the, the quote-unquote religious people of Jesus' day, the ones that ended up killing him, uh, what, what they had done is they had started putting additional rules on top of God's 613 commands. And at first, these, these commands, they sort of got passed on orally, and it was called the tradition of the elders. That, okay, if you want to follow Sabbath, here's all the rules for following the Sabbath. Again, not necessarily rules even God had said that they were supposed to follow, but they had come up with these rules of how to follow the Sabbath. And when it came to this ceremonial cleansing here, the, the washing of hands, they had all these rules of, okay, here is exactly how you do Here's how much water. Here's how you put it on. They even had this thing, it's, it's amazing, that they wouldn't like towel dry their hands. They had to hold their hands at a perfect angle and allow the water to trickle down and drip off the perfect spot of their, it had to be like, a, it couldn't drip from here, it had to be like this perfect spot on the, on the elbow. And what had happened is eventually they put it all together, all these oral uh, commands and teachings, uh, these, the traditions of the elders, and they called it the Mishnah. And, and the, the, the Mishnah for, the, for the, uh, the Pharisees, they held it almost in as high as authority as the actual word of God. They were all about all these rules and, and rituals that you had to follow in order to be made right with God. Again, wasn't necessarily something that God had even said that they needed to do. But they taught that if you didn't do these things, then you're not ceremonially clean. You're actually unclean. And you need to start all over again until you get it right. Can you see how that would get old in a hurry? How all of a sudden what God had commanded you to do is now being done just as I've got to do this. I'm just going through the motions. By the way, this explains an, another story later in Scripture that Jesus with his disciples and the Pharisees actually get mad at Jesus and they're like, hey, why aren't your disciples following this whole hand-washing rigmarole? I mean, they were upset at Jesus. Because he wasn't doing all the ritual. See, to the Pharisees, the rules and the rituals, those were the things that really counted. And the problem with that is when your faith becomes based on rules and rituals instead of a relationship with Jesus, you're going to lose your joy. You're going to lose your joy. You're not going to be content and happy and satisfied in this life. You're just like a little robot. You're programmed to, to do these things. That's not what it's all about. In other words, what I'm saying is don't let your faith become a stone cold, empty water pot. Now the good news is if you feel emptiness in your life because of chasing after the things of this world or you're feeling no joy in your life because of the emptiness of religious ritual, Jesus can still do a, a miracle for you just like he's about to do here in this story. Uh, again, if we sort of backtrack, Mary's come up and said, four words, big problem, no wine, right? Remember, that's where we left off with that. 
Jesus says this then in John chapter 2, verse 4. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My hour has not yet come. Now, two things about this. The first thing is this. Why did Jesus address her as woman and not mother? Shouldn't he have said, dear mother? That's not our problem. No, he says, dear woman. What, what's that all about? Well, a lot of theologians have speculated that this is Jesus now. Again, this is his first public thing that he's, he's doing. This is him now transitioning to helping Mary to see that, look, yes, I am your son, but we're transitioning now that you need to realize that I'm your Lord. That I was under the authority of you as my mother, but now you're under my authority because I am the God of the universe and I can do all things. Jesus actually addresses her the same way when he's on the cross. He doesn't say to his disciples, take care of my mother. He says, take care of this woman. Now, I, I believe that Jesus still respected her as his mother and honored her as his mother. But remember back in Christmas, there was a lot of things that he kept saying that Mary pondered these things up in her heart. And slowly but surely, it's sort of being dripped a little bit of information to her at a time that this is who my son really is. And again, theologians speculate that this is another one of those things. Now, the second thing that's sort of odd about this is he says, my hour has not yet come. What in the world is that all about? Well, anytime you hear Jesus talking about his hour, he's referring to his death. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's getting ready to be arrested, he's getting ready to, to go to the cross, he, he says to the, the Father, he prays and he says, my hour has come meaning that it's time for me to, to sacrifice my life. And so Jesus says to her here, my hour has not yet come. You're going, well, why would Jesus be talking about his death at a wedding celebration? Well, remember, this story isn't just simply about running out of wine. This is a story about the emptiness of the human life and the joy that we often don't have. And so Jesus is like, hey, I am going to do something about that, but just not yet. My hour has not yet come. Now, Mary, she doesn't quite get it. And so she sort of persists on. And she isn't sure how she knows this, but she just has this, this feeling in her heart and mind that, wait, my son can do something about this situation. And so she says this to him in verse 5. So she went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now Mary may not have gotten all of the, the details here, but I think actually Mary gives us an awesome example of prayer. Because what does she do? She sees a problem. She sees Jesus, and she says, Jesus, here's the problem. Take care of it. Now, notice she doesn't tell him how to take care of it. She just brings the problem to him. And again, that's a great lesson for you and I. When it comes to prayer, when you have a problem, 
see Jesus, give the problem to Jesus. Don't tell him when he has to do it, how he has to do it, all the particular. That's not up to you. You just give the problem to Jesus and then have the faith like Mary did here to say, all right, we're giving it to him. Now, whatever he says to do, let's do it. And quite frankly, that's the problem with many of you when it comes to your prayers. You're like, God never answers my prayers. God isn't listening. Yes, he is listening to you. And he's told you, here's how to answer this prayer. But it's not me just going to come and there's a miracle for you. Sometimes he isn't going to do a miracle. Sometimes there's things that you have to do as a part of the process. We're actually going to talk about that next week. That he wants you to do something in order for a miracle to take place. In order for your prayer to be answered. But you just want to sit back in your lazy boy, propping your feet up, eating your bonbons. He's like, no, get up off your butt and go do something. Do what I say to do. And then the miracle can take place. We already read uh, verses 6 and 7, but we'll read them again and then we'll continue on in the verse 8. It says, at the feast there were six stone water jars that were used by the people for washing themselves in the way that the religion said that they must. Each jar held about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants to fill them to the top with water. And then after the jars had been filled, he said, now take some water and give it to the man in charge of the feast. Somewhere between the time they got them all the way filled to the top and they transported it to the man who was in charge of the feast, a miracle took place. The water had turned into wine. Jesus didn't stand up and go, hey, everybody watch this! Didn't utter a couple magic words. There was no, like, lightning from heaven. There was no, like, smoke and mirrors. I mean, just somewhere along the way, the quiet intervention of Jesus took place. That's one of the things I want you to get to seeing today is that miracles aren't always just these big spectacular things. Sometimes miracles are just the quiet intervention of Jesus in your life. Somewhere along the way, these cold stone jars were now filled with abundance and joy, and blessing. Verses 9 and 10. The servants did as Jesus told them, and the man in charge drank some of the water that had now been turned into wine. He did not know where the wine had come from, but the servants did. And he called the bridegroom over and he said, the best wine is always served first. Then after the guests have had plenty, the other wine is served. But you have kept the best until last. They understand why the the guy said this to the, to the bridegroom here. He's like, you know what people normally do? They bring out the good stuff to start with, and then they get people a little bit tipsy. And then once they're a little bit tipsy, then, you know, they bring out the cheap stuff, because you're not going to even notice that it's the cheap stuff. But he says, that isn't what you did. You have actually saved the very best until last. And Jesus is going to do the same thing for us. You'll put your hope and trust in him instead of in the empty promises of the world. If you'll put your hope and trust in him instead of just religious ritual. If you'll have a relationship with him, he will save the very best for last. 
Jesus promises you joy throughout your life. Again, keep in mind, difference between happiness and joy. Happiness has to do with your circumstances. Joy is something you can have all the time regardless. It's all about a relationship with him. See, I I feel bad for people that don't have a relationship with Jesus, that think that this life is it. Because if this life is it, the best doesn't come last, does it? Because our body starts to decay and break down. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit older now. It used to be like, you know, I would play sports, you know, and stuff as a young man. And I'd be like, well, okay, I'll probably be a little sore from that tomorrow. Now I wake up some days and I'm sore and I have no reason why. You know, it's like <laughs> I laid eating my bonbons with my feet propped up yesterday. I had... Why am I sore? <laughs> I mean, if, if this life is it, I mean, you know, clipping coupons for Depends and like, you know, researching the best denture creams. I mean, that, that makes this life seem like a ripoff, doesn't it? <laughs> But with Jesus, this life isn't it. The best is still yet to come. And because you have that hope within you, even as your body starts to decay, you can still have joy. You you can have a joy in your life because you know this isn't it. He's still saving the best. It's still yet to come. It's still further down the road. In other words, like a fine wine, you can actually get better with age. Some of you may have seen this. This uh, past week on Facebook, I posted an article that was written about a guy from my very first church I ever pastored at. Uh, Look at him here. His name's Walt. And they did this big article about him. Walt just turned 87. Here's the amazing part about Walt. He still volunteers in his community over 30 hours a week. 87, what's your excuse? And notice that smile on his face. He's getting older, but can you see the joy that is radiating from this man? I've known him for about 25 years now, and he's gone through some tough times. His wife, Irene, passed away about six or seven years ago now. That was tough. Was he happy about that? No. But again, happiness has to do with your circumstances. Joy is something you have all the time. And what Walt has realized, somebody once said that the joy is an acrostic, J-O-Y, that Jesus first, others second, yourself last. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. Walt's doing what Nate talked about. Keeps his eyes on Jesus. What I said today, keeping Jesus at the center of your life. And in the article, Walt said, you know what? I'm here to serve people. And every day I just try to bring a little bit of cheer into people's lives. Again, his body's breaking down, but he's experiencing joy even in his old age because the best is still yet to come. And you can have that same joy in your life as well. You can experience it. Jesus first. Others second, 
yourself last. Wrap up then with verse 11. It says this. This miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples did what? His disciples, they believed in him. Now, me, the key word in this verse is the word sign. This is actually a word that John uses over and over and over again. Every time that, that Jesus does a miracle, John says, this was a sign. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of signs in our life? Like when you're driving or, or uh, you know, what, what, what are signs used for? Direction or information. They're either trying to convey some important piece of information to you or it's pointing you in a specific direction. And so again, as we go through this series, realize how amazing his miracles are. But don't stop there. These miracles are a sign that are all pointing to Jesus. Don't get impressed by the miracles. Get impressed by the miracle worker. John writes here, he says, this pointed them to his glory. And because they saw who he really was, they believed. And that's what I want for you these next couple weeks as we go through these miracles. Is again, we're going to see some pretty cool stuff that Jesus did. But it's not about the miracle. It's about who did the miracle. So keep allowing these miracles to point you to Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him. Put him at the center of your life. And start to experience this joy. Yeah, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Start to experience joy. Here's what we're going to do. On your seat as you came in, there's a little card there called the My Miracle Card. I'm going to ask everybody to pull that out right now. Get a pen out. If you need a pen, you can just raise your hand. An usher will come by and uh, give you one. Yeah, we have a couple, couple here in the front, back here in the back. Ushers, if you guys can uh, just bring those through. Here's what I want you to do now. Don't, don't get ahead of me yet. Don't get ahead of me on this. You're going to have an opportunity to actually fill these out each week of the series. And so each week's going to be specific, so don't like write a whole book here. I'll give you sort of the direction of what, what I want you to write about today. You don't have to put your name on this, so this can be completely anonymous. Nobody will know that it's you. I want you to put down today, what is the area of your life that you're feeling no joy in? That you feel empty. You feel worn down. You feel like, wait, isn't there got to be more to life than this? What is it that you need God to come in and do a miracle? And maybe it will be big and grand, or maybe it'll just be that quiet intervention of Jesus when you least expect it. Whatever it is, I want you to, to write that down. We'll give you a couple minutes to do that. And then here's what we're going to do. I'll dismiss you in just a couple of minutes after I feel that everybody's had a chance. You may have noticed on the back wall there, something sort of looks like a spider web. We're going to have you go back and clip. There's just like little uh, clothespins there, and you just clip it there. And what I want you to do then is start praying about your miracle. Bring your problem to Jesus. Don't demand how he answers it, when he answers it. Just give it to him. Listen for what he says to do.
So I want you to do that for yourself, but here's what else I want you to do. Whether it's today after the experience is over, or maybe this week as you're in the building for some reason, or maybe you're going to come in early next week, I want you to go to that wall, and I want you to read over each one of these things and realize that the struggles and the, the problems that your fellow brothers and sisters here at Exponential have. And as you see that, there may be one that sort of grips your heart. And you're like, I'm going to commit to praying for that one as well. When I was just down in, in uh, Tampa a couple weeks ago, one of the guys there, he said, you know what, I don't pray for anything unless I commit to praying for at least a week. And he explained this reason why, and I thought it was really good. He said, you know, it's so easy just to pray for this and pray for that. And, you know, there's just all these, these things. He said, but when I commit to praying for something for an entire week, it really starts to grip my heart. And, and now it's not just this simple, just little ritual of prayer that, that I did just because, well, that makes me feel good. And, well, hopefully God heard it. But because I prayed about it every single day, I'm now vested in it. And I pray harder. I pray stronger for these needs if you happen to, to know the person, which in this case you're not going to know, unless you want to put your name on it. But it, it, it then, you know, you want to go to the person and, and follow up that, hey, is, is God working? Because I'm going to keep praying for you until he does. But again, these can all be anonymous, but right now, go ahead and take your piece of paper and write down, what is the area that you feel empty? What's the area that you need joy in your life? filling that out, I'll explain one more thing. Over the next couple weeks, as God starts to do miracles in your life, and he's moving, there's a little space at the bottom there that you can actually go back to the wall there. We'll just call that the miracle wall for this series. You can go to the miracle wall, just grab your piece of paper, and then write your answer that you've gotten. And that way we can be inspired as we go and, and we're looking at the wall and praying over it that, oh look, five miracles took place this week. Again, miracles aren't always just these big grand things. Miracles are sometimes those small little interventions of God. Let's go ahead and take some time. The Spirit of the Lord is here. The evidence is all around. And that the Spirit of the Lord is here. 